It is Tuesday, July the 21st, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I am Bill Whalen, a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. For those who have been watching us regularly now, I think this is our 14th installment of Goodfellows. You know our format, but for you first time viewers, this is a conversation in which three Hoover senior fellows, we call them the Goodfellows, we're trying to be funny folks. Nonetheless, they offer their unique insights to what may lie ahead in these complicated times. Now let's meet the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran. He's an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. John's also the author of the Grumpy Economist blog and the voice behind the Grumpy Economist podcast, both of which you should bookmark as must-reads and must-listens in this time. John, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks, as well as can be hoped. Now, last week, John, you were moderating the show. How did you like being in charge? Uh, I gained newfound respect for uh, how hard your job is. Thank you very much. Coming to us live from his wilderness outpost is Neil Ferguson, our second good fellow. Neil's a renowned historian and author, and he is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Neil, my friend, a couple of Mondays ago, I was scrounging around trying to watch TV on Monday night, and there you were on PBS in your brilliant show on technology. Only in America can Neil Ferguson be up against The Bachelor. Well, who won? Did you stick around? <laughs> I stuck with you, my friend. I, I think when you watch The Bachelor, you pretty much kind of run out of options. So you, you won, my friend. I'll take it as a compliment. It's a compliment. Our third and final good fellow is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. General McMaster served the nation with honor and distinction for the better part of 35 years, his last tour of duty being that of the National Security Advisor to the President of the United States. H.R., my shallow internet dive tells me that Friday is your birthday. Is that correct? <laughs> That's correct, Bill. Great to see you. Great to see everybody. Okay, so now we got the both of them online. This is your chance to tell Ferguson and Cochran what you want in the way of presents. <laughs> Just more time, more special time with them. <laughs> oh, shucks. Oh, shucks. <laughs> really, HR, think that over. They've got time to go on Amazon and get you something. So, But if you want their company, you go for it. Uh, now, for this episode of Goodfellows, our very talented producer, Scott Immigrant, came up with a very clever concept. And that was that we take the three Goodfellows and we put them into a DeLorean time machine. You remember that car from Back to the Future? There's actually one on the Stanford campus, by the way. They use it to test autonomous driving, not time travel. But the idea was we take these three fellows, we squeeze them somehow into that little car, and instead of going back to the future, they go into the future to the summer of 2022. They then get back into the car, come back and tell us what they saw in 2022. Neil Ferguson, I'd like to begin with you on this because the topic du jour, the topic of this year is one of public health. You're a historian, you've written about the history of pandemics. Are we in 2022 using the phrase post-COVID when we talk about society? And Neil, if we're saying post-COVID, does that mean that we found a vaccine? And Neil, if we found a vaccine, were we able to administer it cleanly? And by that, I mean we avoided a lot of fights over who gets it first, developed nations, underdeveloped nations, rich versus poor, insured versus uninsured, working versus non-working, old versus senior. What do you see in 2022, Neil? Well, I had a really amazing trip to the future. It was Quite surprising, to be honest. I went to a ball game because baseball was back. And I, you know, I asked some of my fellow Giants fans, hey, uh, is this the post-COVID world? And they looked at me almost like they didn't remember the word COVID. And I'm like, you remember the, the, the pandemic, the, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic? Oh, that's so last year, said the guy I was next to. I said, what do you mean? Did, 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 was there a vaccine then? And he said, oh, oh yeah, yeah, there was a vaccine. So, so who got there first? He said, oh, I, I don't remember. I, was it Moderna? asked the guy next to him. No, no, he said it was those guys at Oxford, the Limeys, got there first. I said, oh, that's why we're all able to go to ball games again. And they said, oh, no, 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 we didn't get the vaccine. Nobody got the vaccine. Nobody got the vaccine because we, we kind of worried that maybe the vaccine was was Bill Gates's way of getting a mind control over us. So no, nobody in America got, got the vaccine. So, so I said, what happened then? He said, well, you know, the, the, the pandemic kept going through the fall of 2020, and then it kind of, kind of stopped. And uh, by the time Trump was doing his inaugural January 2021, it was kind of over. 
And of course, you can't blame the guy for claiming the credit because kind of how he won. And um, yeah, so that's, that's the story. Uh, you know, the real story, you, you, you don't know this because you're from, you're from the past, but the real big story of 2020 wasn't COVID-19. And I'm like, what? What, what, what was it? He said, well, it was the, the Three Gorges Dam in China when that blew and flooded half of China and swept away Shanghai. Man, that was a story. Pretty quickly, everybody forgot about the virus after that. So it was a fascinating trip. I mean, I kind of wanted to stick around, but you made me come back to do Goodfellas. So I'm back in 2020, but I promise you 2022 is awesome. John and Neil, he made this sound like a TikTok video that this pandemic, which is supposed to be with us for the foreseeable future, vanished pretty fast. What, what do you guys think? Well, about I, I want to, I think, um, and Neil, as usual, has the sense of the nation. About a month ago, about Memorial Day is when the U.S. gave up and got sick of the whole business. And the left went out to protest and the right went out, the right went out to work and everybody young went out to party. Um, my, my daughter got a test recently. It was hard to schedule one in California and the Lady said, we're getting this huge number of people coming in and their, and their primary, the thing they're talking about is their social distancing regret. Uh, you know, I have, I have a, a sort of a nephew who is 18 years old, took a car trip with four buddies uh, and stopped at bars. And guess what? They picked up a little COVID along the way. Uh, and this is what, you know, Neil was talking about historically. We, you know, this, we, we just let these things rip. We didn't, you know, close down the economy. I, I don't think they're going to close down the economy again over this. That seems to be the mood in the U.S. right now is, is I think Neil got the mood right. We're just so done with this. The, the, the public health and politicians have proved themselves completely incompetent and ineffectual. Nobody's paying attention. We're, we're the big focus now is masks. Uh, what century was it that uh, the Venetians started wearing masks to try to stop the plague? The masks we are using are no more technically advanced, although they're a lot less pretty than the one the Venetians came up with, with the, the long hook noses. That's about the state of things. We can't even produce N95 masks. We have tests, but we can't seem to do anything competent with tests. Just this week, the FDA allowed group testing. Uh, this is where everyone spits in a bucket and you test the bucket metaphorically. The point of tests is to find out who doesn't have it, not who does have it. 50 people can spit in a bucket. We can find all 50 are clear to go very cheaply. Only this week are we legally allowed to even do that. So the, the, I, I think Neil's right, at least in the US, um, public health has shown itself incompetent People right now are showing themselves completely uninterested in the project. It's interesting, this is not slated to be. Europe is still, they opened up and, and things just, and, and it's kind of fading away. Biologically, these things fade away. The uh, Spanish flu is still with us. It just has become much less virulent. The bubonic plague is still there. Uh, so a forecast that it just kind of rips through, we figured out how to treat it well enough we don't need to wait for vaccines. That's like a, a, the teenagers who, who are like reading Superman comic books to win World War II. The tech will save us when we're completely incompetent to do basic stuff on our own. The testing we have could good and just basic uh, people not going to parties and bars would solve this thing. But that does not seem to be the mood right now. HR, your fellow Goodfellows are talking about rather calm times ahead. I haven't heard the phrase Black Lives Matter. I haven't heard anything about defund the police, this, this age of unrest when we're, where everybody Boy, wants to make a parallel to 1960. We're just talking about the COVID. We got, we got plenty of horrible things right. to talk about if you want to be in a bad mood. Uh, that, yeah, but but let, let's stay on the uh, let's stay on the COVID for a moment. We can talk about the forecast for all the rest. Well, of you know, I, I mean, John, it's so surprising that you would be pessimistic about these things. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I'm more optimistic, uh, and and I think that we'll learn our lessons, much like we did after being complacent about transnational terrorist organizations all the way up to September 10th, 2001. I think since 2001, we've been effective. I think at at, at identifying international terrorist organizations who pose a threat to us and preventing them from, uh, from at least successful mass murder attacks on, on U.S. soil. So I think that was a useful analogy as I went to the future. I looked back and, and, and there was a great deal of discussion about the three main elements of, of preparing for the next pandemic. 
the first of these was to really to be able to identify it at the source early. And it turns out that President Trump's decision to withdraw from the WHO served as impetus for reform in that institution and other international institutions that were subverted by the Chinese Communist Party. And as a result, we have better global surveillance and a better ability to respond and contain the next epidemic closer to its, its source. In, in the second area of, of innovation, we actually turned out to pretty well also. You know, years ago, I had the opportunity to, to be part of investing research and development funds into rapid vaccine prototyping and especially the capacity to manufacture vaccines at scale. We had in mind in the U.S. Army the hazard from bio threats, from man-made bio threats, but it turned out that those investments paid off and we were able to develop vaccines at scale much more rapidly than anyone had anticipated, produce them at scale and, and distribute them uh, under the under the Operation Warp Speed, who's, which is run by a, a highly capable general officer named Gus Pern and one of my old friends uh, in the Army. It was in the third area, though, that we had to learn the most, and that's in mobilizing the, 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 uh, the response, the medical response, should there be another massive pandemic with broad geographic reach uh, in, in the United States and the ability to affect densely populated areas like the New York City metropolitan area. And it's here where we had to make the most adjustments, especially in our ability to gain visibility of, of the, the needed commodities, where the shortages were, whether they're hospital beds or incubators or pharmaceuticals or, or PPE, as, as you mentioned. And there have been associated adjustments to supply chains to make sure that those supply chains are, are, more, are more dependable and, and are more uh, resilient. Uh, we've, we've, uh, we've brought the, the national stockpile back up and we're prepared should there be uh, another pandemic to mobilize the medical response, not only in terms of material, but also in terms of, of personnel. There's a new organization called the U.S. Civilian Corps, uh, which has, has uh, now built a database of civilian volunteers who are willing to move across the country, those who have their, their skill sets associated with, for example, respiratory therapists or nurses who are willing to, to help uh, work in nursing homes and protect the most vulnerable populations. Uh, the, the country has paid attention to the, the Hoover uh, COVID Lessons Learned Report that was developed uh, in September and published in September of, of, of 2020. Uh, and it had a big influence on, on legislation and on policy so we're prepared for the next pandemic. Life has returned to normal. Uh, I, I was going to, to, uh, to put on a wig and tell you that male pattern baldness had also been cured uh, in the next <laughs> the last two years, but I thought it might be startling for everyone. Can I, can I push back? <laughs> I want to push back just a little bit on this. Uh, the Bush administration came up with a beautiful pandemic response plan. The Obama administration updated it, and there's a beautiful report with uh, PowerPoints and slides and graphics and the rest of it. Health and Human Services has another pandemic response plan. The military has one. There's at least 12 that I know of. Uh, last time I looked at these, none of them cited the existence of the others, and as you know, none of them went anywhere. When Victor last week uh, painted a picture that the Trump administration in the fall was going to create this miracle of technocratic competence ready to go at it and isolate and test and trace and really get at the next one the way the South Koreans were. were. I, I couldn't start help but chuckle a little bit. Um, you know, technocratic competence doesn't seem to be what our government is, is particularly known for these days. Uh, you know, they're talking about reshoring pharmaceuticals so we're ready to go. And I wonder whether we're just going to do to the pharmaceutical industry what the Jones Act did to the shipping industry and make it completely uh, dysfunctional for the next time around. So I, I welcome your hopeful, you're always the optimist here and I, I love it. That's what I would love to see happen, but that America will not, not just do again what we did last time, produce a lovely investigative report, what we did after 2008, a lovely investigative report of everything that went wrong, it gets put on the shelf and that's the end of that and back to business as usual. But it's worse than that actually, John, because what tends to happen, uh, and it's not just in American history, it's in all history, is that uh, a disaster occurs and in the aftermath, the, uh, the survivors try to learn the lessons and make sure that they're ready for the next identical disaster. And of course, the next disaster is something completely different. I mean, we've gone from terrorism uh, to financial crisis to pandemic. If you think the next disaster is going to be another pandemic, you definitely haven't been following the series history. And um, that's why I brought up the Three Gorges Dam, uh, the biggest dam in the world, which is under intense 
stress at the moment uh, because of torrential rain uh, for days on end in central China. If the Three Gorges Dam goes, that's the biggest flood disaster uh, in a century worldwide, I'd guess. And it will really change the conversation. Uh, and we'll have a, a Goodfellas episode about our own crumbling infrastructure, no doubt, as we frantically try to learn lessons from, from that disaster. I, I think as I work on my new book on disasters, the, the real lesson is that we're always trying to fight not just the last war, but the last disaster. And this means that we're almost always completely unprepared for the next one, which just is in a different genre altogether. I mean, imagine uh, my surprise, uh, if I can just revert to my exciting trip to the future, uh, when the guy next to me started talking about uh, the Republican revival in California. Now that I really was surprised by. And I said, wait, not only did Trump get reelected, but the Republicans are reviving in California. And he said, oh, sure. Well, after the chaos that swept the cities of the, of the United States uh, in late 2020, when the the cops basically stopped policing and the homicide rates shot up. Oh, uh, and after that earthquake set off all those wildfires in California, the Democrats were suddenly on the hook for a whole bunch of problems that they'd been trying for a long time to blame on, on President Trump. But voters finally made the connection, particularly between the Black Lives Matter protests and, and the collapse of, of order in American cities. He said, you'd be amazed if you took a walk around San Francisco today. It's practically a ghost town. I said, really? He said, yeah, most people headed out of the big cities uh, in the fall of, of 2020. And uh, you'd be surprised uh, at the shifts there have been in, in settlement around this country. I, Silicon Valley's in Texas now. I said, seriously? Oh, yeah, they all moved to just outside Austin. They couldn't face the taxes. Same story in New York. I'm like, what? Yeah, Wall Street's in Palm Beach now. New York's a kind of science fiction uh, Blade Runner scene. You, you don't want to go there if you're planning any further trips into the future. So I, I really had a most enlightening time uh, in the year 2022. It, it was full of wonderful surprises, and not all of them were unpleasant. Well, and this is, what, hey, this is what I would say. This is what I would say to John, you know, is that, you know, to, to use the, to, to go back to ancient Greek philosophy, you never step in the same river twice, right? And this gets to Neil's point that, that, uh, that you know, that, that history is not linear and that actually we do have agency uh, over our circumstances. And while I think it's, you know, sometimes it's fun to criticize, you know, the current state of affairs, I think what's more important is to figure out what we do to change things. You know, I'm just rereading an old book of you know, Freedom's Forge by Arthur Berman in which he talks about how American society chronicles, how American society, American business uh, mobilized uh, under the grave threat of, of World War II. Uh, we've done this multiple times in our history where we responded to threats. And, and whereas Neil's right, if we do a good job, we do a good job at, at learning the right lessons from this crisis, that, then we'll, we'll have to prepare for another one you know, and be prepared to respond to a different kind of crisis. I mean, if you think about the other biomedical crises that could have been uh, they included Ebola, they included other, uh, other SARS uh, viruses, but they were contained uh, much more rapidly. So, so I'm, I'm optimistic about preparing for future pandemic. I agree with Neil. I mean, the next crisis is much likely uh, going to be something quite different. And, um, and, but I think we ought to have more confidence in our own ability to affect the future course of events. Uh, I know Neil is not a Marxist. As a historian, uh, we, we, uh, we, don't, we don't believe that impersonal forces determine our fate, right? We can, we can have an influence uh, over, over, over the future course of events and, and we can take measures to improve our security and our prosperity. Well, that actually, it's funny you should say that, HR, because vast impersonal forces do control a lot of history. It's just not the ones that Marx was talking about. After all, pandemics periodically have completely disrupted human life and, uh, and pandemics are a lot worse than COVID-19. And in fact, the natural world is constantly shocking us uh, with unexpected disasters, uh, uh, whether volcanic or, 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 or earthquakes. Uh, it's just that none of this is predictable uh, because the realm of nature's character 
characterized by non-linearities, uh, power laws, all kinds of chaos and complexity. And that, that's why history doesn't have any predictable pattern of the sort that Marx and others have, have looked for. I, I, I'm, I'm not being entirely facetious in imagining a, a, a surprising 2022, because my experience is that most people think about the future in far too confined a way, imagining that it will just be a kind of slight forward projection of whatever they read in the New York Times earlier in the day. And it's absolutely the wrong way to think about the future. A, there's no such thing as the future singular. We do have enough agency HR to have a bunch of futures to choose from. Uh, but, but B, these futures are often really surprising, low probability futures. The ones we end up with are not the ones that the Aspen set or the Davos set uh, expects. I was on a, an extended uh, conference over the weekend with a whole bunch of very eminent Americans from all walks of life. And it was striking to me how absolutely certain they all were about the outcome of the election uh, on November 3rd. And those exact same people four years ago at exactly the same time of year were just as certain about the election of 2016 and they were just completely wrong. In fact, of that whole group, only one, of, only one other person uh, besides me knew or at least intuited that Trump might win. So I think when we're thinking about 2022, we really need to expect some unexpected stuff uh, and not just draw lines forward from very recent trends we think we've identified. Can I, I just want to kind of bring together some of this. Um, we are likely to have another pandemic. Uh, this one is likely to peter out, and like all ones in the past, within a couple of years, people will have forgotten. There will be some plans up on the shelf, and we'll see how long they last or how long, how soon they all get defunded and the mask supply doesn't get renewed, like what happened in California. Uh, the next pandemic is likely to be more lethal than this one. We actually have a perfect one for waking us up without being terribly lethal. But Neil's right. The next crisis is likely not to be a pandemic. It's likely to be something else. And I think what unites all of these worries is not the event, but what it causes. If you have a healthy, adaptable government and society, you can deal with all sorts of stuff. Um, if, if your society, societies fall apart at some point when there's an external threat that they can't handle. It might be a military threat, it might be a plague, it might be crop failures historically. It's when you can't handle it and the internal things break apart. And I think in some of uh, in Neil's Blade Runner <laughs> views from 2020, you know, as conservatives, our job is to worry about the structures of our government, our politics, and our society falling apart, meaning unable to adapt to some threat, whether it be an earthquake, a dam busting, a pandemic, a crop failure, <clears throat> a war, a civil war somewhere else, nuclear war. Uh, whatever. <clears throat> That's the underlying, it's not what pushes it, it's the underlying uh, thing that happens afterwards that we all worry about. Interesting. And, and nobody, nobody can forecast stuff. Uh, Neil is exactly right. We're all old enough to remember the futurologists of the 1970s and all the things that they confidently forecast. The same Davos set was forecasting that we would completely run out of raw materials. Remember the Club of Rome? That was the popular thing at the time. Uh, those things. The one thing we know is that it's, it's all wrong. <laughs> we don't know what the right thing is. We know it's all wrong. So, so John, let's build on that for a second. Neil is, uh, now I do wonder how many beers Neil Ferguson has at baseball games or if by 2022 they're serving uh, cannabis edibles at the ballpark in San Francisco, <laughs> but uh, another topic for another time. Uh, but John, Neil has described a life more normal, which is going to ball games, which is completely out of reach in California right now under our phased reopening. Uh, but John, how else does society look normal in 2022? I flew across the country the other week on half-empty airplanes and deserted airports. Are, are people flying and going about? If you and I were to go to New York City, what would happen to these 75,000 small businesses, three-fourths of which I think are out of business right now because there's no tourism? Are people moving about or is COVID shut down people? Well, I want to emphasize what Neil said. <laughs> the uncertainty of it all. We, what we know is we are in a time of great uncertainty and we don't know what's going to happen with the disease or really with people's reaction to it. Uh, the, the good news, you know, the death rate continues to plummet as uh, it, I guess what's happened is that the doctors have figured out how to treat it and keep people alive. Uh, so how much longer are we going to people put up with the pain in the butt stuff um, or a disease that really isn't killing that many people in the end? Uh, or are we just going to get on with it as we did in the past? 
or are we going to finally uh, you know, discover some vaguely competent public health uh, or demand some vague competence of our public health leaders? So we could you know, stop this thing in a matter of weeks if we just use the tools we have right now. Uh, but nobody seems interested in that. I, I sense people's willingness to put up with stuff or a disease, as long as the prevalence is in the couple percents uh, and mask wearing is kind of a social signal that we all kind of know doesn't do all that. It doesn't do any good to protect you. It's kind of a, a thing that, you know, you're saying being nice to someone else and that's all we've got. Uh, people are going to get tired of that. And businesses, we're going to figure out, let me try to be the optimist again, like HR. We're going to figure out what it takes to get the economy and life going uh, in ways that actually are beneficial to stopping the spread of the disease, not that are just showing uh, stuff. And we're, we're wasting a lot of time and effort on show and people are going to get tired of that. John, I'm really disappointed because I was leaving it to you to predict the inflation surprise of 2022. Well, I thought we were going to get to economics later. I was just putting. I was just. My boom on going to segue to it on your spot, but this is surely the thing by 2022 that we'll be talking about. It's not. It's not a worry in 2020 because we're in the midst of a big supply shock that isn't over. But I'm inferring from things you've written and said recently that uh, when you take a look at the fiscal and monetary policy response that we've had and think ahead uh, a couple of years, it's hard not to believe that there'll be some inflationary downside from all of this. I mean, monetary growth rates, highest amongst any of the developed uh, economies in the US, double digit uh, on an annualized basis, Fed balance sheet exploded twice as much as the ECBs and deficits as far as the eye can see. And of course, if if I'm right and uh, somehow or other President Trump gets a second term, I don't suppose those deficits are going to be tackled. So I'm eager to hear where we are economically two years from now. Well, um, I'll, I'll take you up on that. And there's a bunch of things to talk about. Uh, the debt and deficits thing, uh, I, I'm not foolish enough to hazard on a recorded video that it'll happen <laughs> by 2022. But we know that that which is unsustainable will not long be sustained. Um, in our current system, the mechanism is more like a run. So we, we, we're, MMT is the other virus. It has taken over Washington. The idea that we can print all the money we want, uh, that the, the, the main response to the pandemic is simply the government's going to pay everybody's bills. Looming, um, certainly if the Democrats take over in the fall and possibly if they don't, uh, the federal government is going to bail out the states. Um, you know, they're going to bail out a whole bunch of past debts, the states, uh, student loans. So this, this thing's going to explode. And at some point, people get tired of holding government debt. And then uh, you have a global sovereign debt crisis, as uh, our historian here will remind us, has happened many times over the centuries, ever since Edward III defaulted on the Peruzzi, I believe. Uh, sovereign debt has, debts of this sort have never worked out well. It can keep going for quite a while, uh, as long as people are willing to hold these government bonds and believe that something's somehow or other, competent governments will in fact pay them off, as they certainly could if they felt like it. We just have to return to fiscal probity, reform our entitlements, slowly pay the thing off. But when, when people kind of figure, if the moment comes, I don't think it'll be 2022, I think we'll borrow a ton of money and then another crisis will come out. And um, not only do we think the last crisis is the one we have, we always justify the last answer. In 2008, the government flooded the place with money. Uh, and this time it was the only thing the government knows how to do is flood the place with money. Uh, and we will justify that as the, res the response to pandemics in the future will be close down businesses and flood the place with money. So the next war, disturbance, pandemic, or whatever, you can tell the government's going to turn to borrowing another three times what they've already borrowed. And that's the time, I think, when the bond markets finally say no and we hit our borrowing constraints. And then it's not just a little inflation. It's a wealth. It, the governments in this situation grab all the wealth they can uh, and they inflate away their debts. And since uh, government debt is the basis of the financial system, the unholy catastrophe that awaits us with a global sovereign debt crisis is just unspeakable. Not by 2022, uh, we recover. Uh, and then in the midst of the next big crisis, whatever it is, is when I would look uh, for that to unravel. Now, do we wanna move on to more pleasant economic? <laughs> <laughs> 
Actually, what I'd like to move on to, HR, I'd like to talk about your trip. You didn't go to the ballpark with Neil. You went to China. Let's talk about China in 2020. There's a topic in 2022 for China. This is something this panel does not always agree upon, but you looked at China two summers hence. You can talk about what the regime health was. Did COVID start to undermine that regime? But let's talk about perhaps U.S.-Chinese relations in 2022 HR. Are they defined militarily? Or are they defined diplomatically? Or are they defined economically by tariffs? Well, looking back at 2020, it was a real turning point. It was a turning point because China overplayed their hand. First of all, by suppressing really what was what was should have been a, a, a responsible response uh, to the crisis, you know, you know, going after the doctors who were trying to raise the alarms about it, uh, you know, the the uh, the shutting down of, of internal travel in China long before shutting down international travel, essentially infecting the world with COVID-19, but then really overplaying their hand in this wolf warrior diplomacy, a term taken from a 2017 blockbuster Chinese film. Uh, in, in which the 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 the, uh, the hero, the Chinese hero, turns the tables on an American mercenary, and says, you know, your your view of the world is is effing history, and and this the, the diplomacy that has taken that name, wolf warrior diplomacy, is meant to portray China as the solution to COVID when they're actually the cause. I mean, this is the the arsonist posing, you know, hitch, hitching a ride on uh, on the fire truck. And then, but then also uh, to to advance the narrative that you know that the China's authoritarian model was superior to the West, and it was the West's bureaucratic ineptitude that shows the deficiencies in the West. But that that tide started to turn, actually, this week uh, in 2020, when the UK really took the lead in in denying Huawei access. This is the the the, the Chinese communications firm. Uh, that is building fifth generation communications infrastructure around the world as part of China's play to dominate the emerging data economy and to further advance their sustained campaign of, of industrial espionage against developed economies. And, and the UK's denial of Huawei was just the beginning of really galvanizing sentiment, not only across the EU, but across the free world from Japan to Australia to India. And this wolf warrior diplomacy, the offensive nature of it, caused this equal and opposite reaction in such a way that the Chinese Communist Party began to realize that its, its jingoistic narrative, uh, it, its aggressive policies from bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death in the, in the Himalayan mountains to the, to, to the aggression in the South China Sea, which the, the U.S. answered in a, in a direct rebuke of, of, their, uh, of, their, uh, of their claims in, in the South China Sea, the threatening behavior toward Taiwan and in the East China Sea, uh, China began to have costs imposed uh, on it uh, in a way that would, did no longer allowed them to play, uh, you know, play countries off each other uh, with the continued promise of access to their markets and, and of Chinese investment. And, and this backlash extended even beyond Europe and the Indo-Pacific region and into Latin America and into Africa. And so this was seen as a turning point in the free world waking up to the recognition that the, the, the Chinese Communist Party was not going to liberalize, was going to continue, to continue to extinguish the rights of their own citizens. We've seen the extension of that obviously to Hong Kong recently. And so, uh, so this was the beginning of an effective, really multinational approach to the Chinese Communist Party aggression. And, and as, as a result, uh, China was deterred. Uh, it, did not, it did not continue on the aggressive path towards Taiwan. There were increasing divisions within China about the future control of the party, grave doubts about Xi Jinping being, uh, being leader for, for life and, and the continued efforts to consolidate this hierarchical control and to extend this Orwellian surveillance, technologically enabled police state across, across the country. So growing, uh, growing unrest uh, within China, demands for reform because economic growth in China did not meet, did not meet uh, the, the percentages necessary to grow out of the middle income trap and meet the rising expectations of the Chinese population. Okay, well, Neil, it sounds like uh, HR is suggesting a different kind of dam broke by 2022, or, or are you gonna counter that maybe China, is China 2022, Neil? Is China so 2020, as you said about your time at the ballpark? I think, uh, Bill, it's it's true what HR says that that 2020 uh, has been a 
a year of uh, of realization, uh, especially in Europe. Uh, although, unfortunately, that realization doesn't seem to extend all the way to Berlin, uh, where the German government remains unnervingly uh, keen to be somehow equidistant between the United States and China in a kind of non-aligned movement. But but my my trip to to 2022. Uh, uh, brought me some uh, some further surprises on the subject of of, of China, uh, uh, even more uh, extraordinary than than what HR found out. Because uh, according to the people I was with at the ball game, uh, the, the Chinese had actually launched an unsuccessful invasion uh, of Taiwan uh, in late uh, 2020. Partly, I think, uh, prompted by desperation at the prospect of Huawei being cut off from TSMC's semiconductors. And this, uh, this invasion, uh, of course, uh, ended as a debacle, uh, exposing the wolf warrior diplomat, diplomats to the ridicule of, of the world. It, it turned out that the People's Liberation Army wasn't really ready for prime time. And, and those two American carrier groups that just conveniently happened to be in the neighborhood uh, weren't, after all, sunk as we'd feared by land-based Chinese missiles. So the crisis in in China that followed uh, that uh, was much larger than HR's uh, suggesting. Uh, After the collapse of the Three Gorges Dam and then humiliating defeat in the Taiwan Strait, the Chinese Communist Party's legitimacy crumbled as fast as that of the Soviet Communist Party in the wake of Chernobyl. And by 2022, to everybody's utter amazement, uh, Xi Jinping was gone, and uh, his reformist successor had agreed to elections. Uh, Now, it must be said that things weren't going terribly smoothly. In fact, uh, it it appeared uh, to my friends at the ballgame that China had actually fallen apart. Uh, People were talking uh, about a new age of warring kingdoms uh, as the central power of uh, Beijing crumbled and the different regions of China went their separate ways. So it really was a most surprising geopolitical future that I I visited to and in some ways more dramatic than the one HR HR glimpsed. Mm -hmm. Uh, HR and John uh, and Neil, I have a newsflash for you. John Cochran stole the DeLorean. He took another trip into the future. And guess what he found? President Joe Biden. So let's talk for a moment about a Biden presidency, John, and let's talk about the economics of a Biden presidency. Do you think that he comes in and he tries to be the next FDR? Does he try to do something dramatic in the first 100 days with all this pent-up energy to do green new deals and universal basic income and stick it to Wall Street and so forth? Does Washington really look differently economically two years into a Biden presidency? But John, also talk about the intellectual power behind a Biden presidency, if you will. We're tearing down statues in 2020. In 2022, are we building a statue for John Maynard Keynes? Uh, well, I think that statue got built. It's halfway between Harvard and MIT, and uh, they're not going to take that one down. Uh, but yes, let's actually, the, the DeLorean is an appropriate uh, uh, vehicle to convey us to Neil's uh, uh, 2022, where Trump got reelected, and, and we've had the, the bumbling along chaos of the last four years continue. Uh, let us leave the DeLorean aside and pick up our shiny new Tesla, which uh, will have a $30,000 tax credit and a more appropriate vehicle for visiting the, uh, the Biden future. Uh, but I think it's, it's uh, as we think about the uncertainties, it's one we should think about is what happens if uh, Biden wins. Uh, let's, let's, let's keep the left fork, we'll turn left at every intersection here and also give the Senate uh, to uh, the Democrats. Uh, we know that now there's a big internal uh, war between the sort of the Biden wing, the uh, old line Democrats, and the extreme progressive wing, um, with um, AOC and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and and all the rest of it as the mean politicians and the, and the 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 woke young. Uh, Neil started us out, so I'll paint a dark vision. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, Neil uh, started us out with what seems to be emerging in the cities, a, a wave of, of crime as the police disappear. Uh, and, and this is happening in places that have had Democratic Party machines for decades and decades. You can't pin this one on Trump's tweet, tweet account. Um, Voters, uh, Neil thinks voters will figure that out by November. Um, in my uh, 
I took my Tesla to a land where that didn't happen uh, yet. Uh, and it didn't, or, or people's unhappiness at other aspects of Trump caused them to hope that the Biden wing would, would keep going. But yes, let's empty out the cities. Um, and, and people move uh, to the suburbs. The cities then are bankrupt, uh, so they become Detroit again, and uh, to a disaster for the uh, minorities and low-income populations who live there. Uh, stores don't come back, job opportunities don't come back. Um, in what you see, uh, you know, just the plans the Biden administration has announced, if, if the moderates keep going, you have a wave of green, a wave of regulation. It's sort of Obama years on steroids, uh, green pork uh, lining the streets, <laughs> um, all of it with, uh, with borrowed money, with printed money. And then, you know, Elizabeth Warren has made clear her plans for regulating the financial uh, industry for, you know, pretty much telling people what to do. That, that guarantees you uh, slow economic growth, um, bad, bad labor force outcomes. Uh, they'll certainly fiddle with health care some more and make matters worse. Um, uh, so that, that's not a, a pretty view, but I think that's... Uh, and then if you add to that, if, it, if, they, if the left one really wins and you have wealth taxes, uh, strong redistribution uh, sorts of things, universal basic income, uh, just the economics of that is, is at best a slow, steady decline for the American economy. And at worst, uh, you know, that the chaos from the city spreads out. So um, the, the, the last part of it is their avowed political mission. Uh, they have said they'll get rid of the filibuster. Uh, they're campaigning to get rid of the electoral college. We have already seen a drift in the U.S. towards the politicization, towards the, the legalization of politics, politics by uh, investigation, by uh, crim the criminalization of politics. Um, more and more lands in the Supreme Court, which has then been packed. Um, so, uh, you know, we're not a majoritarian country. We're supposedly a republic with protections for electoral minorities. But I, I see that vanishing. And, uh, and uh, we've got 51% van shove it down their throats mentality taking over our, uh, our political system. So that's, uh, that's the, um, I, I, I took the gloomiest view of what could happen. One could argue with that things could come out better, but I certainly... Um, I've learned from HR, you know, uh, always think of the worst possible thing that could happen and, and start with that one uh, to try to keep it from happening. And HR, let's talk about what's going on outside the Biden White House across the street in Lafayette Square. Are people still trying to pull down Andrew Jackson's statue? Are we still seeing marching in the streets? Is there still a movement in this country? Is there still a protest? Or if Donald Trump is out of office, does it all just go poofed? Well, I think the polarization in our in our overall politics continues. You know, thanks to thanks to social media, thanks to the elites remaining polarized. But I do think that there there's there there is already a nascent movement among I think the vast majority of Americans to have real discussions, really about about the nature of, of our history and what it means for us today. Real discussions about what we have to do to reform, to ensure equality of opportunity, to reform education. I, for those who, for anyone who hasn't watched. Uh, Peter Robinson's interview with Thomas Sowell on charter schools. We have to watch that because, you know, there are real solutions. And I think what Americans want are real solutions, not non-solutions to these problems that we're confronting. So I think once the vitriol around the current situation dissipates, there is going to be a tremendous desire for Americans to have real conversations about real problems and to craft real solutions. And I you know, I think Hoover should be central to that to that effort. Mm -hmm. Professor Ferguson. Well, I, I've been slightly disturbed at the journey we've we've taken on on uh, and John's Tesla, uh, but I, I'm going to try and look on the bright side as I've had to leave the DeLorean behind and and my uh, and my 2022 in his 2022 where. Uh, uh, it it won't be President Biden by then, John. It'll be President Tammy. Uh, Tammy Duckworth, very likely, um, and we'll be uh, coming up on a on a midterm uh, election that will be almost certainly a disaster for the Democrats. Because if you're right, John, if all that you describe happens, uh, I don't expect that the nation will cut the Democrats any more slack than they did in 2010. Uh, when you'll remember that two years into the Obama administration, 
when it was clear that recovery from the financial crisis wasn't going to be V-shaped, uh, the Democrats took a hiding. So I think even if we're, we're stuck in your Tesla, it's not quite uh, as bleak a prospect as you describe. I suspect that in the two years you're talking about, between now and 2022, Republicans, if they do lose in November, will have a chance to regroup, uh, rethink a lot of the things that need to be rethought post-Trump. Uh, and get themselves into a position to start punishing the Democrats for all the kinds of problems that we already see in California, that we will be seeing at a national level if there's a Democratic administration uh, in 2021. Well, except the, the fundamental danger, a small one, but I still think a present one, uh, who wins elections depends a lot on who counts the votes and how the votes get counted. Uh, and the increasing, the, the Trump administration people may all be in jail by then. Uh, on, on various charges, uh, you know, all of us are guilty of three felonies a day if we look carefully enough. Um, the, the rules for counting votes uh, and who is allowed, what the rules for speaking uh, is the internet. Uh, by 2022, are you allowed to say things on the internet? Uh, are you allowed to say in public that you're a registered Republican or is that evil and racist by 2022? I'm exaggerating. Uh, but I, I, uh, I hope your faith that the American institutions of free elections and that are not too interfered with by the legal system and that the losers of that election agree to the legitimacy of the outcome, I hope that is still in place. Uh, that's in danger on both sides. Trump's tweets about the legitimacy of losing are already um, not helping, but uh, the, the, the widespread... We've lost in the 21st century what we had until now. The losers accept the fact that they lost. Uh, they have, they do that because they have the space to regroup and try again. They know that they haven't uh, just lost absolutely everything uh, because they have the rights that um, uh, electoral minorities still have. They still have the filibuster. They may have one car part of the house. They have a Supreme Court that won't instantly uh, regulate whatever they want. They don't. Administrative agencies can't just write edicts anymore. Um, we'll see if that's how much of that is still in place by 2022. I hope so. It Neil, is. So, so Neil and HR come 2022. Do, do constitutional rights make a rebound? Is freedom of speech back? Is Ability to express yourself is tolerance back in vogue, or is cancel culture still the still the the passion? Oh, I think that the, the revolt the revolt against cancel culture began in 2020. It's happening right now. Uh, the overreach uh, by illiberal elements, not only on campus but in universities and corporations, uh, has finally reached the point, the crucial point, that it no longer impacts only conservatives. Now, when it was conservatives who were being cancelled four years ago or thereabouts, when it was conservatives who were being disinvited, uh, strangely enough, we heard nothing from the centrist liberals. But now that it's centrist liberals, yes, even J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books, who faced cancellation because the, the heretical views on transgender rights, suddenly there's a crisis of free speech. So no, I think the cancel culture is devouring itself in the way that most revolutions do. And here I want to echo something that Victor Davis Hansen said when he joined us as a guest uh, last week. Uh, peak Jacobinism, uh, peak loony left was definitely mid-2020. If you look at the polling, ordinary Americans are completely out of sympathy with all of this. Uh, we are a free speech nation to our very bones off of campus, uh, in the saloon bars, insofar as they're open. I think Americans were overwhelmingly hostile to the statue toppling. Some polling showed that very clearly. It's not what they want to see. They sure don't want to see chaos in the streets uh, of, their, of their cities. So I think by 2022, the tide will have shifted quite decisively. And universities that set the right tone on free speech, like the University of Chicago, will look like uh, very smart institutions because people will want to go study there. I mean, talk to students. It's no fun being on a woke campus where your every expression is scrutinized by the anti-far thought police for signs 
of ideological transgression and blasphemy. I'm happy to say that we will have put this behind us a long way two years from now, regardless of what happens uh, in the election, for the very simple reason that it is now just hurting liberals, regular mainstream liberals, as much as it used to hurt conservatives. And they had it coming, by the way, because where were they? when free speech was being limited before? Where were they when we were fighting for free speech for conservative speakers like Charles Murray? For some reason, Charles Murray's not really entitled to free speech, but JK Rowling, mm, that's another matter. Step forward, Noam Chomsky, one of the people who signed a letter published in Harper's, uh, in which a bunch of mostly uh, liberal intellectuals suddenly stood up for free speech. And my response was, well, where were you guys? you know, a few years back when we could have used you. Still, uh, it's never too late to come to Jesus where it comes, when it comes to free speech, and I'm glad to see the tide turning in those quarters this year. The other option, you know, those are the older 1960s liberals. The other option is they lose, and the, the woke progressives take over the Democratic Party and the apparatus of government with it. If that happens, John, the Democrats will be out of power for a generation. I, I'm confident that those positions are deeply un-American and foreign to, to mainstream America. And the more the Democrats go down the road of wokery, if they do it this year, the more actually Trump has a chance in November. Because if there's one thing that gets applause, every time the president speaks, it's when he goes after politically correct culture. Lots of people agree with him on that. They may not agree with him on everything. They may not think he's handled COVID-19 very cleverly. But on these issues, and I, I was struck by this listening to his most recent interview, when he speaks on issues of the culture war, I think he's on very strong ground with the majority of Americans. HR, is there a chance by 2022 that patriotism makes a comeback of sorts? The pendulum shifts the other way. Instead of, instead of having arguments about whether or not to ditch Francis Scott Key and whether or not to stand in an, in an anthem, that actually people start to feel better about their country. I think it's related to the points that Neil's making. I think Americans are going to have conversations about how fortunate we are, how fortunate we are that we have a system that is self-correcting, where the American people have a say in how they're governed, that, 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 that we can force government to respond uh, to, to popular will. I think I agree with Neil that, you know, that, that Americans reject or are predisposed to reject any kind of orthodoxy. And that's what has emerged. Is, is, is this sort of orthodoxy associated with the cancel culture and so forth. So I think it's going to be the American people. I think within academia, it's going to be the students who are going to reject this, this orthodoxy. And I think that there will be a, a reform movement that also reinvigorates a, a patriotism uh, and, and, uh, and a recognition of, of the tremendous benefits of, of living in our society with freedom of speech under, under rule of law, and and, uh, and and it helps restore confidence in our democratic principles and institutions. Now, what uh, I think that that what John has, has brought out are significant dangers, right? To, to that the resurgence of that confidence, and we have to keep an eye on it, right? And we have to be able to call out demagogues on both sides, right? On both extremes uh, of the political spectrum, uh, who would place uh, those democratic institutions and processes in jeopardy. So I want to agree with that because I've been too grumpy today. And as usual, HR leads us into optimism. This could turn out to be a wonderful moment for America, uh, like the 1964 moment when we woke up and, and as a country, lots of us saw these problems before, and recognized there is a problem with race. There is a problem with policing. There is a problem with the inner cities. A lot of the problem with policing is the police unions, which work the same way as the teachers unions do to really hurt there is a chance that, that we are galvanized to reform uh, on those issues. There's a chance that we're galvanized to recognize the threats to free speech, to recognize to the ref uh, threats to political liberty that the that have that the um, uh, the, the trends the, the the trends in D.C. have gone to, and and reform the country and bring it together. If, if that that is the, the that, that it's 1964 and not 1968 uh, is uh, I, I think. A the possibility to be hoped for. And I, I'm glad HR keeps moving us to hope in that direction. Well, and Bill, what I just add to this uh, to, for, for Bill and, and, and uh, John and Neil, I'd love to hear your comments on this. I, I think that what we've talked about in connection with China is connected to how we see ourselves. I mean, you can't help but see the contrast between you know, <laughs> protesters who are tearing down statues of Ulysses S. Grant, right? And, and the citizens of uh, the people of Hong Kong who are waving American flags and, and rejecting 
the, the Chinese Communist Party's effort to extinguish all of their freedoms. And so I, I think that, that we, it's a good thing uh, that we live in our country and that we're not in Beirut, for example, you know, where a corrupt regime has has stolen the future of that country, where power is only on three hours a day, where you know the elites have have spirited away tens of billions of dollars while their own population is now starving and subjected to hyper hyperinflation. I mean, we are pretty darn lucky, right? And, now, and we know we're imperfect. It's a work in progress. But I think there's a connection in, in our discussion between what we're seeing overseas and a reaction, in, especially in connection with China, to a closed authoritarian system. The protests that we haven't talked about this, but in the, in the eastern part of, of Russia uh, these days as well, and, and what we have, right? And I think there's going to be an opportunity for us to become more thankful for what we have and get to work on, on improving our, our nation. Well, and if, if, if this comes out, as you suggest, that we look honestly at our past, but this is a moment of reform, I think then we have reason to be once again patriotic for a country that looks honestly at, at uh, the things that were wrong and is able to fix them. Maybe slowly, maybe after we've tried everything else, uh, but we are one of the few countries that actually is able to fix these things. Uh, and, and that would be a wonderful outcome. I did see a, a wonderful sign, uh, Hong Kong protesters waving American flags and the caption on it said, America, be the America that Hong Kong thinks you are. <laughs> Very good. So gentlemen, we have about a minute, a minute or two left here. So a quick around the horn question. Uh, you've all been to 2022 and looked at the situation. You're suggesting an America that is on the mend, it's healthier. Will history show Neil, John, and HR that somebody or something found the cure for what ails the country, or did the fever just break on the natural in this democracy? Which happened? Well, the key to American history is not actually charismatic leadership. Uh, it's the ordinary citizens of the country and their ability to solve problems uh, locally and without the need for central government to intervene. I was really struck by this looking at the report of uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's Commission for Unalienable Rights, uh, a reminder really of what the country is for and what it should stand for, not only abroad, but, but also at home. So I think that the key mistake that we have made, and it's been made on both sides of the political spectrum in recent years, has been to invest too much significance in the personality and temperament of the president and to forget that the whole point of the United States is not to be a monarchy, uh, but to be a true, a true republic in which, in which power and responsibility both lie with the citizen. If we can get back to that by 2022, I'll be glad I became an American citizen. If we can't get back to that, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. Stay here in Montana with guns and ammunition and canned food, I expect. Okay, John Cochran, your turn, then we'll give the birthday boy the last word. Okay. And happy birthday, HR. I agree. I, I, that Pompeo uh, report was was really remarkable, just for stating things that to us are obvious, but to about 49% of our fellow citizens are not obvious. That America is about the machinery of government, uh, about um, the rules of the game, a remarkable set of rules of the game that have, have survived all sorts of craziness of ideas and, and people in the past and guided us to better outcomes. Uh, and if that is revived and appreciated and seen for its uh, power to slowly but surely reform and get us in the right direction, uh, exactly. Our founding fathers did not believe in, in, uh, in the wise king because you might get one occasionally, but you also might get one that's not so wise. And that's what tends to happen. Of course, democracy, the number one thing democracy is about is peaceful transfers of power. And if I have to pray for one thing out of this November, it is a decisive election uh, and not one that puts to the test uh, our machinery for the peaceful transfer of power. H.R. McMaster, on the eve of your 39th birthday, <laughs> tell us, you went, to 20, you went to 2022 and you saw a healthy America. How did America get healthy? I think America- This time machine of yours is broken. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think America, America got healthy by studying its past and studying its past in a more meaningful way. I mean, I think if all of us, as, as we're depressed, in fact, I've, I've a couple of books here that I've been just reading in. I've got Lincoln's papers here, uh, and, uh, and I've reread parts of Grant's memoir, The Federalist Papers, and especially I would recommend, based on the, on the, the virtues of our decentralized nature of our government, uh, Tocqueville's, there's one volume, uh, excellent, 
uh, edition of of, uh, of Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. So I, I take solace from our history. I think that what we need to do is reinvigorate curriculum reform of our curricula in in, uh, in in universities and in high schools, not to create a Pollyannish view of our, of our history, or to pro provide a more balanced view of, of what was this unique experiment in democracy, uh, the achievements of, of, of our revolution, the, the recognition that it was imperfect from the start, that it wasn't until you know almost 100 years later that we reconciled the greatest contradiction in that uh, in the, in that uh, uh, in that in that in that revolution in the in the, in the Declaration of Independence and in our Constitution, uh, with a war, our most destructive war in history, that emancipated four million slaves, and then of course that was an imperfect imperfect journey in and of itself, right? With you know with uh, the, with uh, Jim Crow, the, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, you know the separate but equal period, that, but then the achievements of the Civil Rights Era, and you know it goes on. I mean America goes on. And we have emerged from every one of the crises that we have encountered stronger. And, and, and I think that we'll do the same this time as well. But it's going to take all of us working together on it. And it's going to take really, I think, Americans to, to, to really have conversations with each other, to reject fringe positions, to, to reinstill our confidence and, and freedom of speech and in our de democratic institutions and, and processes as, as we discussed. And, and so I think... Um, you know, I think we have tremendous opportunity here uh, in, in the, between now and, and uh, the future from which we just returned 2022. And let's call it a wrap on that note. Now go start celebrating your birthday, which I think is called Ferguson style. It's like a multi-day rollout, right, Neil? <laughs> yeah, well, we, we Scots try to, to say less about our birthdays with every passing year, but I hadn't realized how young HR was until he got out of the DeLorean. <laughs> So that's it for this episode of Goodfellas. We'll be back next week with a new uh, new show, new content, new conversation for you. On the behalf of the Hoover Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, and H.R. McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay strong, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.